So, we continue in the Gospel of Mark. And this week we come to a passage that Jesus is teaching us, as we will see, about Himself and how we can easily go astray. So this passage this morning is Mark 2, verses 18 through 22. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Mark 2, verses 18 through 22. The Word of God says, Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to them, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests feast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at the passage this morning, I pray that your word may go out from your scriptures and into your people so that your people may be edified. Lord, I pray that you would have grace upon me as I deliver this message, that you would strengthen me and uh, provide me, Lord, the accurate way to uh, explain this scripture to your people. Lord, may all this be for your glory and in your honor. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we may be seated. So here we have a question about fasting and why was it that some people were while others were not. So I have titled this sermon, Patching Up religion, man's religion, with the gospel. And we will see why. Many times what happens when we hear about Jesus, we hear about the gospel, we, need about, we hear about the need for repentance, about the need for a savior, and we may understand that concept. We may know that we are not perfect, that we have a debt against God, and then we take the next step without really thinking too, too hard about it. And that next step that we take after we realize that we need Jesus, this could be either coming to Him for saving faith for the first time, or maybe coming to Him in the need that we have. And then we proceed to take that step. And that can be very dangerous. Why do I say that? Because we might partially accept what we have heard and what we understand about Jesus. Yes, we need Him in our lives. We need to do certain things to be faithful to Him. But in doing so, we grab certain parts of the gospel and try to patch them into the lifestyle that we're living. 
And what we end up with is with disaster. Because we cannot <coughs> grab bits and pieces of the good works that we're commanded to do and that we're commanded to do by Scripture and all of a sudden think that because of that, now we have some sort of favor with God because we're doing something. Just like water and oil cannot mix, neither can the authentic gospel be mixed or coexist to rule in your life with any other worldview or philosophy. Amen. Jesus does not allow that as we will see in this passage. And when we think about why Jesus wouldn't allow that is because he has an exclusive claim to rule over the spiritual lives of believers. There's no such thing as, okay, you could have Jesus and just adapt that to the religion or to the philosophy or to the worldview that you're most comfortable with and kind of make that your life. No, you cannot do that. When that is done, as we see here in the case of the religious Jewish people, even Judaism, which comes from the Old Testament, the people that God chose to bring the Messiah, even with them or with any other pseudo-Christian religion in existence, not to mention all the cults that are out there, that are all works-based, any world religions, what you'll end up doing if you try to adapt aspects of the gospel with that is that you're bringing condemnation to yourself in doing such things. That's why I'm telling you that the steps you take when you acknowledge that you need to do something about what Jesus is claiming is very dangerous. So let's find out why. A little recap. As we come to the story here about people confronting Jesus about fasting, Jesus has re had recently performed a couple of miracles, healings. They were, of course, physical in nature. And everyone witnessed them. But the most important thing that we have noted about those healings is that they were first and foremost spiritual in nature. He forgave the sins of the paralytic. He forgave the sins of the leper that had no hope. And when we see that, Jesus moves on from doing miracles exercising and proclaiming his authority and now he goes and calls Matthew or Levi into the ministry to follow him and then we see there the power that Jesus has over the will of men if Jesus calls someone and it's a genuine call they're going to come so there we see his exercise over sin over physical condition over the will of man and the common theme has become that the religious folks of the time had a certain expectation of Jesus. And every time they put him to, to the test or they try to question him, initially it seems that he comes with an idea from totally left field that we're not expecting. And then he just blows him out of the water with what he says and what he does. And the constant theme that we're seeing is that they say, wow, like, who is this man? He speaks with such authority. And the works that he's doing are works that 
ultimately can be attributed only to God. And the text tells us several occasions already, as we've seen um, in the first two chapters of Mark, it says that people were amazed. However, they were not converted. Right? So then we come to this chapter in the narrative of Mark in which a confrontation happens led by the Pharisees. But now something important happens in which it's not only the Pharisees, but the disciples of John the Baptist have joined the Pharisees in bringing this question, this accusatory question to Jesus. So, what are we going to learn today? What are we going to look at in this sermon? First, we're going to see that division can be caused among brothers, among believers, over externalities, over things that my opinion is better than yours, based on what God has revealed to me. And therefore, I will... I will cut ties with you if you don't agree with me on this matter. Division among the brethren. Secondly, we will see and we will learn about fasting. Right? Perhaps not the favorite subject of many of us. Especially someone like me that really likes food. Not only to cook, but to eat. Right? As you guys very well know. So, what is fasting? Are we to practice it? And if so, is there a proper way and an improper way to fast? Although this sermon is not focusing on a sermon on fasting, because of the implications of the question, we need to look at what is the context of fasting. Thirdly, we're going to see that while Jesus corrects his critics once again, he takes this opportunity to make a claim of divinity. In other words, Jesus will make them see that He is divine. Whether they accept that or not, that's different. So, we will see why. That was a very interesting observation that I learned while studying this. And lastly, we're going to see how self-righteousness will always blind us and prevent us from embracing what Jesus has done for us. That's what we will tie it all up. Okay? So, let us see how we're going to do that. Let's dig in into the first verse here of the passage. Verse 18 says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. So looking at this verse, this is where, this is where we're going to spend the most time of this uh, message this morning. We have parallel accounts in all the three synoptic Gospels in which we are told a little bit of additional details so that we put them together, we get a better idea of who the people were that came to Jesus to ask Him this question. And as we're going to see in the first learning point of this morning, that unlike other times when the Pharisees came, trying to accuse or to catch Jesus in a theological battle. This time, the disciples of John the Baptist joined with the Pharisees. We can see that uh, 
specifically in Matthew 9, he quotes how the, the disciples of John come, and apparently it appears that it's the disciples of John that take the initiative to question Jesus on this matter. So, division among believers. Why do I say that? Well, John the Baptist obviously was a follower of Jesus, right? And that would follow that if the disciples of John the Baptist are learning from John the Baptist, then they would kind of flow up the chain through the org structure, if you will, to be followers of Christ. That would be what makes sense. A couple of things to remember about John the Baptist, about his personality. He was a unique fellow, right? What do we know? He was into asceticism. What does that mean? He was into a rigorous type of lifestyle that he, you know, voluntarily imposed on himself. He secluded himself. He abstained from the normal food that people would eat at that time. And he wore unconventional clothes. So, as sort of a odd fellow that he was, so to speak, it is not too surprising that his disciples would lean to a certain type of lifestyle of fasting, of denying themselves from certain uh, comforts, if you want to call it, of the time. So, you know, that's not bad in itself. Okay, well, the disciples are doing what John the Baptist did, the, the type of self-denial that he had. Now, more importantly, what I always ask when I'm looking at a teacher, when I'm reading a book, when I'm learning from someone, I really don't care too much how they dress or, uh, you know, whether they drive a, nice, drive a nice car or not. What I care about is what are they teaching? What is their theology? When they get up to that pulpit, when they are sharing the gospel with someone, what are they saying? What are they sharing? So, what was the theology of John the Baptist as far as we know? Well, let us remember that as far as we can tell, John the Baptist was as orthodox as it could be in the time that he was proclaiming the one that, were, that was to come. He was the forerunner to Jesus in the New Testament. Not only that, but Jesus himself in Luke 16, 16 said that John the Baptist was the last of the prophets. The context being of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist is the last of the prophets. So here we have Jesus himself validating the ministry of John the Baptist. And then we have the scene that we saw earlier in Mark that John the Baptist baptized the Lord Jesus. He witnessed how the Holy Spirit ascended on Jesus and God the Father gave a supernatural blessing. So this is the prophet, spiritual, um, holy, guy, holy guy that has disciples and his disciples are now coming to question Jesus, joining forces with the Pharisees. You see that? So the danger we can fall on is, oh, you know what? You know, I, I come to a Reformed church. I'm good. I, I mean, I would never join the bad folks against someone who we respect or um, have a high view of as regard, in regards to theology, right? Well, let us be careful because we can easily be swayed by our personal preferences or by reading into a particular text or even to support something that suits our lifestyle and then we can have division among brethren. 
So that's a warning for us here. So let's be careful not to be influenced into division about externalities. So let's analyze what the question brought implies. First, in the eyes of the natural man, an outside observer that knows a little bit about religion, a little bit about spirituality, if he sees two people, one of them says that he is religious and he's devoted and he fasts and he prays and you could see that he does it and he gives alms. And then you see the other guy who also claims that he's a devout believer, but he doesn't fast. And you kind of don't see him pray. He might pray, but you kind of don't see him. And not only he's not doing that, but he's actually feasting. He has having a party. So in the eyes of that outsider, which one do you think that logically to the natural man would seem more spiritual? The one that is abstaining and praying and fasting and everybody's seeing him? Or the one that maybe he does that, but you don't know? Obviously, right? The religious person maybe with the fancy robe or the fancy hat or what have you. In our eyes, that would be the most holy person out of the two. Right? Now, secondly, this question seems to be focusing on the disciples, right? Because they say, why is it that we fast, but your disciples don't fast? So they're, they're focusing on the disciples, allegedly, right? We're doing the right thing versus you are not doing the right thing. This is their belief because if they thought that they were in the wrong, they wouldn't have asked. The reason they're asking is because they're bringing an accusation. So what can we conclude from this question that they're bringing? They're not only saying, we are righteous, we are fasting, we are doing this good work. Why aren't you doing it? But let me take it a step further. Not only that, but even though the alleged accusation is to be against the disciples, who are they discipling under? Jesus. So ultimately they're saying, why are you being a bad teacher? Why are you teaching your disciples not to fast? And as a matter of fact, you just had a feast with the tax, the tax collectors and the sinners. Why are you doing that? Right? So again, to the natural man, it seems that now we have, aha, we got him. Right? In order to understand the context of why they would bring this question up about fasting, let's explore a panoramic view of what the Bible says about fasting. To fast, in the biblical sense, means to abstain from food or food and drink. For a certain amount of time. We see that throughout scripture where they might do it for a day, for three days, up to 40 days. In our modern days, I've often heard that people adapt forms of quote-unquote fasting. Such as, I'm not going to watch TV for a week or for a day. Or, I'm not going to eat sweets for a particular time. Or, even things as ridiculous that I've heard uh, when people give up certain things for Lent, I heard some folks say, you know what, I'm not going to curse during Lent. Or, I'm not going to, I'm going to try my best not to be offensive 
during the Lent period. So in other words, things that I shouldn't be doing anyways, like I'm going to stop sinning for Lent. You see how ridiculous that sounds? Now, it's commendable to want to better ourselves or to want to abstain from TV for a while. I mean, that's fine. But let's not say that we're going to fast because nowhere in the Bible do we get the idea that that would be fasting. That's not what fasting is, biblically speaking. So, biblically speaking, fasting always refers to abstaining from food or food and drink. Let's not try to justify ourselves by fasting from other forms of, really, from leisure, right? And if we are spending too much time watching TV or too much time in social media or too much time, um, you know, eating foods that are um, not good for us, maybe we have bigger problems and we are putting our, our trust and our treasures and our time where we shouldn't. So let us remember that and let that be a, a way for us to, to encourage ourselves not to fall into that. So what does the Bible say about fasting? In the Old Testament, which is obviously what the Jewish people of the time of Jesus were uh, allegedly going by, there is actually only one mandated fast. Sure, there were many times where the people were instructed to fast, either by the king or by a spiritual leader or what have you. But as far as requirement to fast, it was only once a year. Leviticus 16 for the day of Yom Kippur. While we do see other examples of fasting, if somebody wanted to strictly go by what the Old Testament mandated, it would be one fast, once a year for Yom Kippur. There's other examples of where people fast. I'll mention just a few. Esther chapter 4. When Esther was going to go to the king to appeal to him to not um, allow the people of Israel to be killed. But she needed to be summoned by the king. If she wasn't called, she would be in danger of being killed for disrespecting the king. So in that instance... There was a fast for, for three days, right? Uh, another time that we see a fasting is in Isaiah 58. And it tells us about what true fasting is for repentance versus false fasting. And then we come to the New Testament to mention a, a couple of examples there. Where Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And he was tempted. We see in Acts chapter 13. When there's praying and fasting before a missionary journey so that God would guide them. And then we see some fasting examples where the people fasting were not doing it in humility, but rather in self-righteousness. In Luke 18.11, we see the Pharisee that is praying and he says something like, I thank you that I'm not like other men. They do this and they do that. But me, I mean, I fast twice a week. And I give tithes of everything that I get. And then, of course, in this passage that we are learning today about, in which the Pharisees are boasting of their fasting, we see that, and we're going to see how they actually are being self-righteous and are, are not fasting in a righteous way. 
So with this, we do have the fair question. Why are they doing that? And why are Jesus' disciples not fasting? And then furthermore, since we're in the subject, should we fast? Is this biblical? And if so, it appears that if we do fast, we can actually go astray and we would have, better, we would have been better off not fasting rather than bringing condemnation to ourselves for doing it in a self-righteous fashion. So from a quick survey of scripture, some of the passages that we mentioned just now, we see that other than the one mandated fast on the Day of Atonement for the Jewish people, the other times that people fasted in scripture have certain characteristics. So let me name a few of those. First and foremost, it is to be voluntary. It is not because somebody forced you or because if you don't do it, it's going to look bad, right? If a group of brothers and sisters are fasting, and you know what, I have to say yes, because if I say no, you know, I'm not being a team player. No, it has to be voluntary. Secondly, it is to be done with an attitude of humility. Thirdly, when we fast, we see that it's uh, the people in Scripture that have done it righteously it's either during a time of loss, a time of mourning, a time of grief, a time of sadness, sorrow, and also sometimes it's a time of repentance. Like I have sinned against the Lord. I have much sorrow in my soul. We also see that specific times in Scripture when people fast righteously is to seek for God's direction, to ask for endurance in a trial, to ask for wisdom on how to proceed, and to ask for protection as you embark on a journey. And what we see here is that the common denominator of the people that are fasting is that they recognize a total and absolute dependence on God. An attitude of, Lord, I am so weak, I cannot do this. I am totally dependent on you. And I understand that you are not obligated to act because I'm fasting. It's an attitude that we acknowledge that, Lord, you are holy, you are righteous, and it is not that I'm doing something that will move you to reward me in a matter of doing works-based favor on your behalf. No. Rather, it's an attitude that says, Lord, I'm fasting because I'm seeking you, because I'm dependent on you, and whatever the outcome is, I know that is going to be for your glory. And I'm going to have peace. So to take a closer look. Let's look at none other than the words of our Lord Jesus. When he preached the Sermon on the Mount. That's in Matthew 4 verses 16 through 18. Right up on the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he speaks about and it says and when you fast do not look gloomy like the hypocrites 
for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So this is the words of Jesus. And here we see that he's telling his audience and ultimately his followers, right? If we claim to be followers of Christ, to not fast like the hypocrites. The example of the hypocrite who was fasting was, we just read a little bit ago, Luke 18.11. Why? Because there's a deliberate outer appearance of, look at me, I'm suffering. I am denying myself. Look, I'm fasting, don't you see? They are seeking the approval of men, given the appearance of virtue. And what does Jesus say? They have their reward. Why? Because they're getting what they're essentially asking for, for fasting. I'm fasting because I want others to see what I'm doing. And Jesus said, their, their wish is granted. They got it. On the contrast, Jesus says, but when you fast. So here, looking at the second point that we're learning about fasting, we come to see that, should we fast? Well, Jesus doesn't say if you fast, but he says when you fast. So the answer, should we? I guess the answer is yes, we should. So now let's dig a little bit deeper to see how that would look so that we can do it in the manner that God desires. Right off the bat, we can see that we are not to trumpet this before men so that everyone could, so that everyone could see what we're doing. Right, that's obvious. Now, how far should we take it so that others don't know? Should no one know? I mean, obviously, there's biblical instances like Acts 13 where the church was fasting and praying. Right? So, we can also take the wrong attitude by saying, no, 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 I want nobody to know. Because I don't want my reward in heaven to, you know, to burn up. Which, again, right there, you're just being self-righteous. Right? The motivation is wrong. Actually, I had instances when I was a young believer that I, I wanted to fast in certain days. And I would come to my mom's house. And she knows that I, I love eating the food she cooks. <laughs> and she would ask me if I want to eat. And I'd say, no, mom, okay. But why? Are you sick? Like, oh, you're getting skinny and this and that. <laughs> so I was left with the dilemma all right, well, I'm going to have to tell her that I'm fasting. But then my reward in heaven is going to burn. <laughs> or I'm just going to say, okay, fine, I'll lead. But then I'm breaking my fast. So I'm, it's a lose-lose situation, right? But as we mature in the faith, we come to know that, no, like we need to really grasp what the main message is. Like, am I doing it to be self-righteous? To let people know? Or even the other extreme, am I really keeping it secret? Also because I'm being extremely self-righteous. And I'm so holy that I don't want anybody to know. Right? Let's not err on either of those extremes. Obviously, if there's a, a fast that God is calling us within the church, we know that we're fasting. 
right? Now, what we shouldn't do is attend a luncheon with our co-workers and say, oh no, I can't eat because I'm fasting, right? right? So let's, let's not be confused about what it means to do it in secret versus what would be doing it in secret, but still be self-righteous about it. So also, when we say, okay, so it, it appears that we should fast, we should ask, what is God's will for me in order for me to exercise the discipline of fasting? So we know that Jesus says, when you fast, so okay, I got that part. But we need to remember at the characteristics that we look of folks that have done it righteously. It needs to be voluntary. That's the first thing that we need to know. Now fasting is so against our human nature. Why? Because it quickly shows us how dependent we are as creatures. I'm not sure if any of you have tried it for more than a day, but it's tough. Quickly we realize how weak we are. How, how much necessity we have to, to, I mean, eat at least a little piece of bread. Oh, that, oh that's like the best piece of bread I ever had. <laughs> right? But it's a way for us to remind ourselves that we are weak. If you remove food from us for a day, for some of us even half a day, we are already in, in a state of distress. So it's a way for us to deny ourselves and remind us of our, of our dependency on something that is outside ourselves. Now, if we are comfortable in our spiritual lives and we're asking, is, is it God's will for my life that I fast? But we're just cruising. We're cruising our spiritual, in a spiritual life, even doing um, things in the church, serving the church, you know, being a, a righteous family man and, uh, you know, providing for my family. We could become so comfortable that we could say, you know what, I don't need to fast. I'm doing what I need to do and life is good. So I would tell you, you're right, you don't need to fast. Why? Because in order for us to fast, we need to be awakened to the fact that we need God's presence in our life. If we don't realize that we need God's presence in our life, what did Jesus say? I came for those that are in need of a physician, not for those that think that they're fine. And how can we awaken that? Well, I would suggest that first it would be by being honest. Lord, Actually, that's me. I don't feel like I even need to fast. Break me. Help me. Convict me. Because we can go and say, okay, well, let me fast. I'm going to fast for a day or two days. And I'm going to pray while I fast. But yet, you're not doing it with an attitude of emptying yourself. Of realizing that I'm doing this because I need to seek the Lord. I'm doing it so I could check the box and to say that I did it. See, this goes back to, to the first point that I made. As we start patching our lifestyle with pieces and commandments of what Scripture tells us, we are in danger of going astray. And we would have better off not doing anything. So along with this, let's think about maybe some spiritual heroes 
in our lives that we could say, wow, you know, that person, a great saint in history, the work that God accomplished through their ministry. Again, to an outsider, looking at those people in history who have been great saints, theologians, missionaries, evangelists, someone would say, well, they're doing everything right. They, they wouldn't need, you know, to fast. And it's actually the other way around. When you look and analyze the lives of those folks, of those saints, you can see a common pattern. Those that are serving God, those that are in the most intimate communion with God and serving God, are those that constantly realize how much more they need God. Amen. So if we're in a state of saying, you know what, no, I'm good, I don't need to fast. Well, yeah, Jesus didn't come for you. You're fine. So let's have a bit of reflection when these things from Scripture are being addressed to us. Because the next step is for us to come and bring accusations to brothers and sisters who are actually being more righteous than we are. And we're going to accuse them of not doing or not living the way we're living. And end up being like the Pharisees and the disciples of John in this case. Alright, so that's the first verse. And that's the one we're going to spend the most time on. Okay, so let's move on to verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So here is Jesus' response after he's pretty much accused of being carnal. Can you imagine that? They're accusing Jesus of being carnal. He's eating with, he's feasting with sinners and tax collectors instead of being spiritual and fasting, right? And Jesus responds with what seems to be an odd response, right? Why is Jesus giving this what seems to be a totally out of left field claim? But let's realize this. Jesus is making a great claim here. Jesus is coming to them and responding with, I am the bridegroom. What does that mean? Let us consider the following. As we saw already, when people practice fasting, generally speaking, for general for spiritual reasons within the Bible, is because they're seeking some sort of guidance, but ultimately God's presence. In the Old Testament, God is described as having a covenant relationship with his people. And in many instances, is described as the covenant of a husband to his wife, to his bride. Ezekiel 16, Jeremiah 31, Isaiah 54, Hosea 2, Joel chapter 1. Instances in which the people of Israel were told that God, Jehovah, God Almighty, is their maker, is their husband, is their bridegroom. 
In the New Testament, we obviously see a little bit more clear in which the Messiah, that is Jesus, is explicitly pronounced to be the bridegroom of the church. So Jesus comes and he responds to the Pharisees and the religious people and he says, I am the bridegroom. I am here with my people. Why should they fast? Jesus is saying, as a matter of fact, they should feast because they're seeking God's presence and I am physically with my people. Jesus, why are your disciples not fasting? Jesus is saying, because I'm God, that's why. Remember, Jesus was not killed, was not murdered for what he did. But for what he said. Now, this brings the point, the third point, that Jesus takes this opportunity once again to claim his divinity. Oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. Read your Bible. Right? So the attribute that Jesus is putting on himself at this point, his audience, right, the Pharisees, they were highly educated in the law. They would know what reference is being made when Jesus is saying, I'm the bridegroom. Here, Jesus making this claim, even if he's insinuating of slipping himself in that position of the bridegroom, he's either an imposter and he deserves to be stoned for blasphemy or he is God. So Jesus tells him, I'm the bridegroom. This is my party. And they're not going to fast. As a matter of fact, they're going to feast while God is with them. It was well understood, even to this day in, in the culture of Judaism, that they have a rule that there's no fasting at weddings. Like, you're better off staying home. Like, we don't want you here if you're going to be fasting. Because again, we come to that place where food is being served and somebody will say, oh no, no, I can't. I'm fasting. Right? Like, there's no room for that. This is a feast. Verse 20. Jesus uh, continues and he says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them, and then they will fast in that day. So there's a supernatural power that the Bible only attributes to God. So even though the, the specific claim of Jesus saying, I'm the bridegroom, just happened, he kind of is continuing along the same tone. Jesus is foretelling the future in this verse, verse 20. And that is something that the Bible only attributes to God to be able to tell the future. He's making a statement with authority and with certainty about the bridegroom being taken away at a particular time. The language that is used here is one of violently, violently being snatched away. Meaning, 
he's going to be killed. So Jesus proclaiming, that's going to happen. And secondly, not only am I going to be taken away, but then my disciples will be mourning. Then they will be sorrowful because of my loss. And then they will fast. So a note on this verse, some have commented that this verse is part of where the tradition arose of certain types of fasting on Good Friday. And even in the Roman Catholic tradition, um, some people who really adhere to that tradition, even every Friday, like they don't eat meat or they do a, a complete fast. And the claim is that there's some evidence that this type of fasting continued even throughout the early church. And there was a document in the early uh, church centuries that said, let's not fast like the hypocrites do, like the Jewish people, right? On, on Monday and Thursday. But rather, let's fast on Wednesday and Friday. So they adopted that tradition. But think about that for a minute. If what we're to take away from this is let's not fast like the hypocrites in those days. Let's move to do it on these days. Could it not also quickly lead to a mechanical formula of I'm not going to be self-righteous like, like the Pharisees. Let me make my own type of self-righteousness. Mm -hmm. right, we'll be missing the point completely. So the point here is that Jesus is making a claim of the future. I'm going to be snatched away, and my disciples will fast then. Verse 21 and 22. We'll take those two together. It says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So here's an interesting passage in which Jesus concludes with two analogies. Again, at first, the analogies about patching an old garment with a new cloth and about putting new wine in an old wineskin, it appears that they're kind of vague, like out of place. Like, why would Jesus say this? Well, sometimes if we put on our modern glasses and look through the scriptures, it doesn't make sense to us. But to the audience to which he's speaking, the examples that he's giving would make sense that that's something they're familiar with. Like whether or not they grasp the spiritual content of it is a different question. Nevertheless, the examples he's giving them is something they would be very familiar with. So each of these two illustrations being clear to his audience bring a challenge to us. Not only to understand why he uses illustrations, but also to apply it as far as how is this relevant to the topic at hand of fasting or not fasting. And let us consider the following. This actually is a good continuation of the wedding analogy. Why? 
Because in their tradition, to the audience that he's speaking to, a wedding, which he just gave the analogy that he's the bridegroom and they're having a feast, a wedding requires good clothes as part of the guests. Matthew 22, 11 through 14, talk about that. And also, a good wedding feast requires plenty of supply of wine. We see that in John 2, verses 1 through 11. That's where Jesus made his first miracle. So we start to see that this is actually linked. The answers and the words that are coming out of the incarnate Son of God cannot just be to fill space. There's meaning here. So what do we see here? We see that in both cases, the intention of what is being done is a good intention. The intention to patch an old garment and the intention to store wine are both for a good cause. In one case, to improve the state of the garment, right? Let's patch it up. While in the other, to be able to age the wine to ferment it so that it becomes fine wine. However, the manner in which someone could go about doing this, even though they have good intentions, brings forth the opposite. It brings forth destruction of what they're trying to fix. In one case, fixing the garment, you're actually going to tear it. And by pouring the new wine into the old wineskin, you're going to tear the wineskin and you're ruining both. You're going to waste the wine and you're going to tear the wineskin. So in the end, it is clear that when these two activities, having good, genuine intentions, are done, you would have been better off not doing anything because calamity happens, destruction. Similarly, fasting in a way that seems good in the old tradition, in the case of the religious folks here, actually ends up condemning them. Why? Because they have tried to patch up their religion with good works. With fasting, with praying, and with giving tithes. <coughs> it's like the basic um, rules in Judaism for a religious person. Prayer, fasting, and giving of alms. And they're doing that rather than seeking God in humility and repentance. So this brings us to the last point. Self-righteousness will blind us from, from embracing what Jesus really has for us. We could go and say, you know, I'm okay. I'm a good person. I don't need Jesus. Or even as a Christian, we could say, hey, look at me. I'm being diligent. I'm going to church. I'm going to Bible study. I'm praying. I'm fasting. Now, there's nothing wrong with obedience, obviously. That's not the point. But we go wrong when we pride ourselves in it. Then we have tried to patch up with good works our religious life. So our motive is not to be moralism. Someone who is not a Christian could be a better person than I am. That's not the point. 
but rather is to obey Jesus because He loves us. So in review, what have we learned? We saw that division can be stirred up over externalities between brethren. doesn't matter how, how good we think our theology is. Now, with that said, obviously there are points in which we should divide because we, we should not unite over falsity. But let's be careful not to stir strife among the brethren over externalities and, you know, who's more righteous for doing a particular thing a particular way. And then we learn about fasting. Should we do it? What was the answer? Yes, yes we should. We should be careful about doing it. We're not to take it lightly. We should do it with the correct motive, acknowledging our absolute dependence on God and fasting for His glory. And then we saw that Jesus takes this opportunity not to give a beating around the bush commentary of how fasting should have been done or not. He actually comes in and just tears to that door and says, because I'm God, that's why. Sometimes, when we are prompted to speak about our faith, about what God has done, about sharing the gospel, we want to beat around the bush. No. We have the truth and we should speak the truth. And then, lastly, we saw the dangers of having an appearance of virtue, of godliness. But all that is, is a bunch of little patches of my good works. Making it seem as if I'm a righteous person and I'm such a good Christian. And in doing so, I'm bringing judgment to myself. For being so proud in what, I've, in what I'm doing or what I have accomplished. So, let us have an attitude of not patching up our lifestyle with good works, with fasting, with praying, with giving tithes. Why? Because we cannot patch our garment. We require to take that dirty garment off and put on the robe of perfection, which symbolizes the righteousness of Jesus. No patches will do. And if we mix Christianity, if we mix the gospel with any other spiritual worldview, we'll be worse off. Why? Because Jesus is not just another option. Jesus is not just another way that you could adapt to your life. No. We need the righteousness of Christ. And how do we get the righteousness of Christ? Right? Obviously, we could realize, okay, you know what? You got me. There's no amount of good works I could do to become righteous. But I don't want to leave somebody hanging and say, okay, then, then what can I do? What can we do? Is to put our faith in the saving, perfect life of Christ 
in what he did. He came to fulfill the law perfectly. He obeyed the Father perfectly. He died a death that we should have died. He was our substitute. That's why we don't need a day of Yom Kippur anymore and be obligated to fast. No. Jesus said it is done right before He died on the cross. But He resurrected showing that He has power over death so that when we put our trust in the finished work of Jesus, then we don't need a patch to put in our garment. We actually can take that off and the old has become new. Now we have a white, perfect robe, which is the righteousness of Christ. And because of that, now I can be obedient. Now I can fast. Now I can tithe. Now I can serve to the glory of God for what He has done. Because apart from having that righteousness, I will be no different than the Pharisees that are trying to fast to gain brownie points with God. May it never be. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. I ask that you may grant us understanding, that you may grant us repentance, and that you would work in our lives a desire to serve you, to obey, and yes, Lord, even to exercise the discipline of fasting, that we would do it in a righteous and honoring way to you in humility. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.